We are in a short series on the subject of worship, and this part of the series we're looking at the subject of, as you can see, drawing close to God. And the first thing I want to say is it's really good to be close to God. It's really, really good. In Psalm 84, the psalmist writes, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, even the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. It is good to be close to God. Now, but we might ask the question, hang on a minute. Those that are a little bit awake this morning might say, hang on a minute. Isn't God everywhere? So how does this language of being close to God work? If he's everywhere, then aren't we just all close to him all the time? Well, there's a difference between physical presence and actually connecting. You know, those of you that live in a house with other people will know that you can share the space, but we talk about passing like ships in the night, don't we? Just missing each other. That can happen even whilst we're living in the same space, we can have very little relationship. The Hebrew uh, words for the presence of God, actually, it doesn't use the word presence. There isn't a word for presence like that in Hebrew. The word is faces. When in the tabernacle and the temple they had some special bread that was called the bread of the presence because it was bread that was put in the presence of God. It was actually called in Hebrew the bread of faces. And so the whole idea of the presence of God in the Old Testament is to do with coming face to face. To be in someone's presence was said literally as coming to someone's face, being in their face, if you like. That has a negative sense, doesn't it? Being in someone, don't get in my face. But actually, this whole thing of coming close to God and being in God's presence is to do with getting in God's face. Now, Uh, Some of you will know that God said to Moses, no one can see my face and live. If you're wondering how that fits, um, I've been thinking about it and praying about it quite a bit in the last week. I don't know. I have to say, I I, I don't know how that fits together where God says to Moses, you can't see my face. All I know is that we are invited into God's presence. It's just my grasp of Hebrew is not good enough. That's the problem. I need to do some more. I plan to study some more Hebrew uh, to maybe get to the depths of understanding some of these little bits of Hebrew language. The truth is that although God is everywhere, there remains for us the invitation into his presence, which means coming to him and getting in his face. 
face to face. That's a wonderful thing. That's something different to just sort of going through life with, you know, gods around. It's an encounter and a meeting with the living God. That's what we're looking at together this morning. You know, when we're sharing a house with someone, we can be occupying the same space as them, but pass each other and miss each other. But there's something else. You know, when I go to sleep at night, um, there are a couple of people who aren't in my family that sleep closer to me than my own children, physically. They're my next-door neighbours. Where they sleep, knowing the layout of the house, our next-door neighbours, they sleep closer to us than my own children do. Uh, But there's a wall between us, uh, which we're all grateful for, I think. Uh, But there's another picture there that it's helpful for us to pick up on this morning, which is that our meeting with God isn't just a question of coming close to him, but the Bible does talk about there being barriers between us and God. Even though he's close to us, there are barriers that can get in the way. That's what the Bible describes as sin or the consequences of sin. And so that needs to be looked at as well. So it's one thing to know that God is everywhere. It's another thing to come close to him. And there are a few things to look at. We're going to start off by doing, this is a little bit ambitious, but I think we'll be okay, a brief survey of Old Testament sacrifices and offerings. Uh, I was saying in the car on the way here with Andrew and George that I've been a little bit cautious about how long this might take this morning. But, and then when I said, I'm going to do a brief survey of Old Testament sacrifices and offerings, they said, yeah, that is, that is a little bit hopeful. They agreed with me. But it's going to be okay. We're not going to go through all of the texts of the Old Testament. To try to keep it simple, let me just explain. For the people of God in the Old Testament, uh, there was a temple where God was understood to dwell. And if you wanted to come and encounter God, to meet with him, then that was the place to come. It was a place of ritual. And there were lots of rituals. Uh, There were uh, all sorts of things like the Day of Atonement, the practices that went on around Passover. There were uh, special tools, special clothes, special words, all kinds of detail. If you want to get into all of that and understand it, then there's quite a lot of the Old Testament that you can read that will tell you about it. Actually, though, the way that it's written is it's a little bit more like uh, a sort of learning to drive sort of manual. It tells you the mechanics, you know, when you want to move forward, you know, shift into third gear... You know, it doesn't tell you much about the experience of sacrifice or the experience of driving. A lot of the Old Testament texts are like, so when you sacrifice a bird, break it open by the breast, scoop this out, do that, put that there. It's a lot of it's written in that language, and it's all like how to do it. It can be quite hard for us who aren't actually doing it to get the point. And it can just seem to us like a long list of butchery. Um, let's try and keep it simple. Offerings in the Old Testament were given, let's have the next slide, were given for three major purposes. Let's have the first one up. 
The first major purpose of all this stuff that went on was dealing with sin and guilt. Actually, if you read the first seven chapters of the the book of Leviticus, it details five kinds of offerings, the five major kinds of offerings that were done. Two of them are called sin and guilt offerings. And they were given in order to break down the wall that sin has created. Our, the things that we have done that have wronged God have thrown up a wall, a barrier between us and God. These offerings, sin and guilt offerings, dealt with that. For us to meet our neighbours who sleep so near to us, we can go out our front door and round and knock on their door and they probably won't invite us into their bedroom. But, you know, there's, there's a route. But the Bible is much more direct. There's a promise just of the dividing wall being demolished. And these sin and guilt offerings, the sacrifices that were involved with them, just broke the wall down. Now, how does that work? Again, we don't really know quite how burning a lamb, killing and burning a lamb, achieves forgiveness. There are a lot of scholars who have offered theories. The bottom line is we're not quite sure how all of that works in the spiritual uh, realms and, and so on. But this we do know that God promised to his people in the law of Moses that if they did these offerings, they would be forgiven. So we don't understand all the mechanics of how they work, but what we do know is that they did work. Because God promised that they would. His word says, when you have committed this sin, offer this sacrifice and your sins will be forgiven. So these offerings and sacrifices served to break down the wall and to open up access to come close to God. They did work. They really allowed for that to happen. Which is why the psalmist could celebrate the joy of being in God's presence because they'd known all that they'd done wrong that could have held them back. But God had made a way for them to come in. The second thing that offerings and sacrifices did was simply to honour the Lord. You know, the sacrifices that are listed off were costly. You know, we might quickly read over where it says, sacrifice a bull. I looked up this week how much it would cost to buy a bull um, as as barbecue meat. Uh, It's about two grand. Um, the average bull is about 600 kilos. You can't get it much cheaper than £3.60 a kilo, so you can do the sums. Well, we might not be able to do the sums, actually. It's about two grand. Uh, so it's an expensive thing that's being done. And in the expense of it, there was something, uh, something of a gift being given to honour God. This is probably most obvious in the story of David bringing the ark into Jerusalem, and it says that every six steps, they sacrificed a bull and a calf. It's costly. And it was done to honour the Lord. And there's a picture that Simon showed last week from the royal wedding of Charles 
coming in to Westminster Abbey and kissing the hand of the Queen. And the, the Greek word that was up there in Simon's earlier slide, proskunio, is that sense of coming together to kiss. In Old Testament worship, they understood that the purpose of offerings and sacrifices included coming to honour one who is greater, coming to honour one who is worthy of what we can give. We've been singing about that, haven't we? Our songs this morning have largely been on the theme of honouring God. What can I give? I want to give God something because I love him, actually, and I want to show him that love. Here's another thing, though. The third thing, the third major purpose of the Old Testament pattern is something called fellowship offerings. Now, people in the ancient world, not just the Jews, but broadly, had this idea that the the meat and the grain and whatever it was that you put on the altar was being given as food to God. That was the idea. It's like a a concept and a symbolism that they had. They thought that they were giving something to God. And uh, when we have a barbecue and we burn something to the point where it's completely wrecked, you know, we think, oh dear. But they were doing that. That's what the altar was like. They were taking food, meat and grain, and putting it on the altar and letting the fire consume it entirely so that it went And they saw that as a picture of giving something that was of value to God. If you want a reference, in Leviticus 22 and verse 25, where it talks further about fellowship offerings specifically, it talks about the kinds of animals that you're allowed to bring and put on the altar. And it says says as part of that, you must not offer deformed or injured animals as the food of your God. So the Jews believed this as well. In other cultures in the ancient world, sacrifices were given regularly to feed the gods. The idea being that people were slaves to the gods who might become angry at any moment. And therefore, the more you could feed the gods, the more you could put on the altar, the better. And they'd be less likely to be angry with you if you fed them more and more. With the fellowship offering, the Jews were doing something incredibly countercultural that came from God and reflects the heart of God. Because in the fellowship offering, what they did was they took part of the food and put it on the altar, and it burnt. The priests took a bit for their portion as well. But then the majority of the food was taken back again by those who'd come to worship, and they would go away and have their own barbecue with it. And the idea was that God was having some of the meal, and you were having the rest, and you were sharing a meal with God. That's why it's called a fellowship offering. There is a sharing in common with God. And this was the closest that the average Jew would get to experiencing direct relationship with God. They'd sit down together and recognize that this meal was a meeting with God. 
In the spring, I went to a day conference on Old Testament theology at a Bible college in London because there was one of the sort of world experts on all of this stuff speaking. And he said, if we in the modern world are trying to get our heads around Old Testament sacrifices, the closest thing we have in our culture is a barbecue. So there's something there that's probably a little bit of a surprise to us. The high point of Old Testament sacrifice was a closeness to God experienced and put under the word fellowship, sharing a meal with the Lord. So these three purposes were normally gone through in this order. First of all, offerings and sacrifices to break down the divide, dealing with sin and guilt. Secondly, honouring the Lord, saying, God, I love you and I want to give these things to you. And then it's experiencing a closeness to God. So these rituals led people, if you like, through a relationship enrichment process with God. They brought people close to God. Now, you might well say, hang on a minute, but that's all Old Testament. And doesn't Jesus make rather a difference to all of that? What's all of that got to do with following Jesus? Well, it's true. When Jesus came, he made for a radical change, and nothing was ever the same again. And yet, there was some continuity. Let's have the next picture. Here's a picture that might help. When the bud of a flower forms on a branch, you, know, you can't guess what it's going to look like just from having seen the branch. <laughs> it's not predictable. And you wait to see what comes out. And what comes out is a whole new thing of a different kind to what was there before. But it wouldn't be there without the branch. And it's grown out from it. And it's got the same DNA. It's got the same... Uh, It's got the same DNA running right through the whole thing. It's a little bit like that with the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has the same DNA in it, if you like, spiritual DNA, as the New Testament. And so we can learn from it. When When we seek to come close to God today, it is true for us that it matters that our sin and guilt is dealt with. That matters. And it matters that we honour God if we want to be close to him. So let's have a little look at what uh, the New Testament directly has to say. Firstly, about removing... Ooh, that's done something funny. uh, The barrier of sin. Uh, That is the Berlin Wall being knocked down, apparently with a very particular kind of fog that descended upon it. that day. Something's gone funny with the PowerPoint there. Not to worry. Uh, A picture of a barrier that had seemed impossible to ever break being broken down and people going through and finding relationship again, sometimes with family members that they'd not been able to see ever since the wall was erected. So the difference for us in our relationship with Jesus, is there is now no need for sacrifice. Because Jesus' death was a sacrifice for sin that works in whatever way it is 
that sin offerings work, Jesus' death as a sacrifice works to cover all the sin that we've ever committed or ever will commit. One sacrifice for all time. So we will read from Hebrews chapter 10, which says this very clearly. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews has been comparing what goes on with Jesus to what went on for the Jewish people. And in chapter 10 and verse 10 says this. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy So when I accept that what Jesus did has dealt with my sin and begin a relationship with him, his forgiveness covers everything. It covers everything I've done that I should not have done. It covers all the things that I should have done and could have done and failed to do. And it works forwards as well. One sacrifice for all time, means that all the things that I may yet do that I shouldn't do, or may yet fail to do that I should do, all of that is dealt with by one sacrifice. There is no greater sacrifice than for God to be killed. It's one thing to kill a lamb, even, even many livestock But to kill God is something on an entirely different scale with entirely different consequences. It properly has dealt with all of our sin. So we don't have to try to buy forgiveness from God. Praying, oh God, I know I've mucked up this time, but if you'll just sort this one out, I promise I'll never sin again. I'll be nice to my mother-in-law, you know, I'll be good from now on. Please, God. We don't have to beg with him to be forgiven. He has proven his willingness to forgive by sending his son. There's no question anymore. Neither do we have to worry that God will run out of patience with us. You know, as soon as we turn to God, he forgives us. There's never any question as to whether he will Having given us his only son, will he not graciously give us all things, the scriptures say. So we don't have to beg for forgiveness or worry that it won't be given to us. And yet, confession still matters. The process that the people went through in the Old Testament, whether or not Whatever the sacrifices were doing, it was leading them through a process of acknowledging their sin 
and coming to God and saying, this is what has happened. And that matters in relationships. Just last week, I had someone apologize to me uh, for something that mattered a lot to me, something that had troubled me, I guess, quite deeply. And, you know, I've read the scriptures and I know that since I've been forgiven much by God, I, I, I'm going to forgive. Like, it flows through. You know, I've been forgiven much. There might be a process, but, um, you know, I will forgive I, you know, by the grace of God. Um, but it still meant a lot to me for someone to say, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. What it did was it strengthened our friendship. No end. And the same thing matters to God. It's not that we have to confess our sins to him so that he can sort of go through them and go, well, that one definitely I'll let you off straight away. That one, yeah, okay, I'll let you off that one. This one here, you know, we're going to have to talk about this. This is a problem. You've done this before. And being omniscient, I I know you're going to do it again. (laughs) So, uh, you know, it's not like that with God. Uh, We don't confess our sin to him so that he can work out whether he still loves us or not. But when we confess to him, we give him something that he did not previously have, which is our honesty, our words of trust in him, that we're going to come back to him. It's giving him something that is pleasurable to him and strengthens our relationship with him. So that's all good. So... I guess it's worth asking, what are, we, what are we like with God as far as confession and forgiveness goes? Do we treat him like a bank manager who needs to be won over? Now, I will pay off my overdraft. Don't worry. You'll be all right. Um, are we so utterly relaxed in our salvation that we think it doesn't matter anymore? You know, well, I had all my sin dealt with when I got born again. And I know it covers everything, so brilliant. Well, we can live that way, and we can still be saved from judgment that way. Because it's true, actually, that Christ's sacrifice does cover everything. But you know what? We'll have a rubbish relationship with God all along the way, when actually he's promised us a great relationship with him. Um, I've discovered that how physically fit I am, which varies, uh, is not really to do with how rigorous my my fitness routine is. It's mostly determined by how long it takes me to restart when I've stopped. Because I do stop. I start and I stop. Now, sometimes it's two weeks before I start again. And if that's the case, then I'm generally physically fit. If as it is at the moment, it's more like eight months. <laughs> now, I went for a run sometime in April, I think, so I could claim that. That's not routine, is it, if it's one run? Um, then I'm not so fit. And it's like that with God, uh, in that our ongoing closeness to God is largely affected by how quick we are to say sorry to him for what we've done wrong. You know, if we leave it eight months in between getting honest and real with God, (laughs) then our relationship with him is not going to be so very close. R.T. Kendall, 
is a name that some of you will know. I once uh, had the privilege of speaking to about this subject, and uh, and he said, you know, it's like the whole process of a deepening relationship with God can be described as that that window of time getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter until actually we have a sensitivity where when we've done something that we know would be a problem in our relationship with God, it's just seconds before we say sorry. That is one way of describing a profoundly close relationship to God. But for many of us, much of the time, you know, say, saying all the stuff that's gone on, it's kind of awkward, isn't it? You know, we, it's not in, going, we don't want to do it. It's, it is very much like the feeling of starting to go for a run. Oh, can I do it? Once you get going, actually, you find it's all right. Um, so we can be assured that we are forgiven but if we're feeling far from God right now there's a very um, easy question you know, which is you know, so what do you need to say sorry for is there, is there anything that you've just held back from talking to God about you know, now's a good time we are going to break bread wonderful wonderful setting in which to just be honest with God and say, okay, there's all this stuff. Um, Personally, I don't know whether this is something that just throwing this out might help some of you. I find that in the day-to-day of life, I remember to, there are certain things that as soon as anyone talks about sin that can pop into your head, like thing, they're there. Those things I find I'm saying sorry for regularly. But there is also value sometimes, I, I don't know if you've ever done this, sometimes I think, God, you know, I could just do with being quite a bit closer to you. And I'll write down a list, it's usually quite a long list, of all the things that I know are either, either things that I'm getting wrong or things that I could be getting right. Or sometimes it's just anxieties. There's these things, I don't know what I'm doing with them. Just lay it all out. I find this helpful. Lay it all out. Take time. Take an hour. Take however long it takes. So just get everything that could be an issue out and see it and say, God, this I'm bringing to you. This is a part of what I'm experiencing. This I'm bringing to you. Here's my confession. And forgiveness is assured, and it doesn't half help our closeness to God to talk to him in that way. So that's to do with removing the barrier of sin. Let's turn elsewhere in the New Testament to Luke chapter 7. And have a little think about honouring the Lord. Verse 36 of Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, 
He'd know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, that's the name of the Pharisee, I have something to tell you. Well, tell me, teacher, he said. A little bit of hypocrisy there, isn't there, on his part. He's just a sit- Anyway, yeah. So Jesus says, two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, mm, I suppose you know, the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came to your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Now, not many people got as close to Jesus as this woman. She knew she'd been forgiven, and it brought out in her a simple desire and a wholehearted desire to honour the Lord. To give him what she could give him. She has some perfume. She takes that. Probably not having it all worked out. But just figuring she'll do something. You know, she'll give it to him. And then tears come. And she acts in a way that's not socially acceptable. But she's just wanting to give something to Jesus. Whatever she can. And Jesus receives it. As her honouring him. The Pharisee should, according to the social custom of the time, have honoured Jesus by washing his feet or getting a slave to wash his feet, drying his feet, you know, giving him a bit of makeup, or, you know, oil, you know, make him look a bit brighter, all of that. That was normal in the culture, and he missed it, but this woman came and she honoured him. I wonder uh, whether... Actually, in Europe as a whole, this is a European-wide cultural thing, that the way in which we treat each other is more like Simon than this woman. We don't really do honouring each other at all well in Europe. We're very democratic, and we're exporting our democracy uh, as much as we can, using military force where it might help. Um, but you, you know, you go to other, you go to other parts of the world, and there is a culture of honouring people. You know, you've seen pictures of people going to India, and you know, garlands of flowers being given to visitors. It's honouring the guest. It's making sure that the people that need honouring get the best chairs to sit in. Uh, most other cultures around the world, outside of Europe, get this fairly well. And when I've connected with those cultures, and I've experienced it. When I was in Nepal um, back at the end of last year, I went and preached in this little village church. Only, you know, 20-odd people there. Really poor. 
Um, I put all the cash I had in the offering, thinking they need, you know, they look at, I mean, this is like pounds to me, and it's going to make a, it's going to pay their rent for a month or something. At the end of the, 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 the meeting, we have a meal. Well, actually, more accurately, I have a meal. They cook for me the best thing they know how to cook, which is um, Chinese food. They'd learnt it from China and brought it into Nepal, uh, which takes hours to make. And they gave me a bowl that had more than I could eat, and then they all sat round and watched me eat. And then they gave me an envelope which had the morning's offering in it. Uh, it's a different culture, isn't it, to the one that we live with. Um, there's something that we could do with learning, because in the Bible, we find that this pattern of honouring people is what is expected of the people of God towards God. That we should honour him. And for most of us in Europe, we're kind of, we're just... At a, we have a standing start. You know, we've got no cultural help to give us much idea what that might look like. But it's still something that is expected of us. And again, it is, of course, to do with relationships. It's all about relationship. If I come home on a Friday night and say to Bev, you know, I've had a hard week. Poof, you know, I'm feeling a bit needy. Could you, could you just, you know, tell me the secrets of your heart? Um, and just come and be close to me and, and do me some good. She might be gracious. But if that was all our relationship added up to, week after week, uh, it wouldn't be a very good relationship, would it? We wouldn't really be very close. And again, I wonder whether for some of us in our relationship with God, it's a little bit like that. There's a temptation, at least, for us to live our lives through the week, getting on with stuff, getting on with stuff. Sunday comes round. Oh, I'm pretty worn out. Sabbath. Oh, I get some rest. God, we say, as we come into worship, I could really do with meeting with you this morning. Could you tell me some stuff that'd help? I could really do with that. It'd be really good. I'm pretty worn out. Well, God is gracious. Now, I love my wife, but I know that God's more gracious than she is. Um... And his resources never run dry. So, so he will respond graciously to us when we do that, because he's good. But it's not a great relationship, is it, really? Um, much better for me to come home with a bunch of flowers or some other gift or, you know, do the washing up and look after the kids or whatever's needed and tell Bev that I love her and that I appreciate all that she does for me. And you know what? Our relationship's a lot better then. It is. Although she does sometimes wonder whether if I bring flowers, they're actually the sin offering. <laughs> it, this, this matters. You know, they, they, I want for them to be the, you know, the burnt offering, not the, you know, but the offering that honours, you know. Um, this is honouring you, my love. Because, well, there's some sin offerings you should have done before now. So. <laughs> we'll take those as the first of the sin offerings. Um, you know, and of course, it's a, it's a matter of heart, not a matter of technique. If I buy the flowers on the way home, come home, sort of chuck them to Bev, sit down and watch telly, you know, it doesn't count. It's not a valid sin offering even. 
Um, and this is all really helping us to reflect on what happens for us when we come together to, to worship and to sing our worship especially. Isaiah said of God's people in his time, they honour God with their lips, but their hearts... Well, his, God spoke through Isaiah and actually says, God speaking of his people, they honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Wouldn't it be tragic if that was what God had to say of us? You know, you're singing your songs, but I want your heart. And our Sunday morning worship is meant to help us to do that thing that we want to do. Um, Maybe this would be a helpful picture. It's a bit like our worship leaders are offering us armfuls of flowers that we can take and give to God if we'd like to. Now, we can be a little bit bothered and say, well, I'd rather give him roses and all you're offering is, is carnations and I don't really want to do that. You know, It's not quite right. Or you've not tied the ribbons up quite right. I'm not sure that that works for me You know, as something I could honour the Lord with. Um, I think it would probably be better for us just to say, this is a help to us. And, you know, if you've got some specific song that you want to sing or some specific action that you want to make to honour the Lord, well, go do it, you know. And quite a few of those things, there's actually space for us to do here Sunday by Sunday anyway. Um, But let's see our Sunday worship as a help for us in doing the thing that we are privileged to be able to do. Lulu brings these ribbons week by week for the children to play with. It is a help to them in their worship. As the father of three daughters, I have to say, I don't know. Well, if Lulu, if you didn't do this, we'd need another, we'd need another answer. Because, you know, it's a huge help to young children to do something worshipful that honours God in the context of our corporate worship. So, where have we got to? Old Testament sacrifices, dealing with sin, honouring the Lord, and a meal together. So here we go. Here is our communion meal. The fruit of all of this is that we come face to face with the living God. How awesome and how wonderful. We have this bread and wine as our fellowship offering meal with him. This is what Jesus has given to us. It's kind of like the same DNA, a meal with God, sharing in him, only radically altered. For now, it's not that we make a sacrifice which God eats, but God has sacrificed himself to provide us with his flesh and blood that we might eat. It's so much better. And as we do this, we are filled afresh with the Holy Spirit, those of us who are in Christ. And we are baptized afresh in the Holy Spirit. That is to say that he fills us afresh with the Holy Spirit, and we are immersed again in him. Baptism in the Holy Spirit, baptism is about being plunged into It's what the Greek word means. Being baptised in the Holy Spirit is like God getting hold of us and saying, I'm going to immerse you in the very person of the Holy Spirit till you're drenched and I'm going to fill you from the inside as well. 
That is a kind of fellowship that the Old Testament people of God never enjoyed, but which is given graciously to us.